and welcome to this month's Naked Neuroscience podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, and brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. This month, we're touring through my favourite neuroscience nuggets for 2013, including finding out about the science of funny. I visited a laughter clinic to find out if faking giggles can stimulate the same brain circuits as a real laugh. (laughs) Plus, bearing all in the banya, a Russian sauna, and getting whipped with birch leaves. It's it's really cooling um, and incredibly pleasant. Uh, I'm getting nice rushes of air from my face as you're whipping me. Um, I don't know what to say, I'm speechless actually. That was all in the name of embracing local culture and demonstrating how the brain regulates temperature. Or so I was told. We'll also be absorbing ourselves in addiction. Hearing how mountain goats get their rocks off on psychedelics. Elephants that munch into fermenting fruits and cheeky monkeys that steal holiday makers, mojitos. This is the Naked Neuroscience Podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. launching into the Naked Neuroscience Tour for 2013, let's kick off the programme by catching up with psychiatrist and pharmacologist Professor David Nutt from Imperial College London to find out his top neuroscience nuggets for the year, starting with number five. The Festival of Neuroscience, the BNA Festival of Neuroscience, which I helped coordinate. First time we've ever done it. Fantastic, fantastic uh, display of British and international neuroscience, wonderful series of lectures, posters, symposia, and of course, in parallel, the truly stunning public engagement process it attracted even more people uh, than the festival put on by the Wellcome Trust. So that was a truly memorable, memorable period of uh, four days in London in April. So the second thing I would say is rather different, and um, this year has seen a, a very unique discovery in relation to the treatment of uh, addiction and a drug called Narmathine has been licensed and it's to help people cut down their drinking. It's the first drinking modulator that's ever been put on the market and this is very thrilling for me because it changes the whole paradigm in how we consider treating people who drink too much and we all know people that actually don't want to be alcoholic don't want to drink too much but lose control and this drug helps them we think gain control so this is a truly radical innovation it sets quite interesting challenges to neuroscientists to work out whether it is that how it's working does it actually improve self-control does it reduce reinforcement and craving not that's not understood yet but it is a it's a first of its class and it could be very very advantageous to to millions of people worldwide who would like to have sensible drinking. They don't want to binge, but they can't hold it together when they start. Thanks to David Nutt. Back in the summer of 2013, I had laughter on the brain. 
quite a few of you got in touch asking about fake versus real laughter and the contagious power of giggles. In order to investigate this, I visited a yogic laughter clinic hosted under a chestnut tree on a lush green in Cambridge. I spoke with Zoe Harris, who hosts the sessions, to find out why clinics like these are proving so popular. So, laughter yoga was invented by Dr. Madan Kataria in 1995 in India. And his philosophy behind it was, as a medical doctor, he wanted his patients to um, improve psychologically but without the use of drugs. So, he found an article about how laughter, even fake laughter, um, can trick the brain into feeling more happy. And so he researched this a bit and he started trying to get this group together in the park and they met and they told jokes to each other and they had a bit of fun for a few weeks then the jokes got out of hand, got a bit inappropriate. And so he developed a series of exercises that would just help promote laughter. And so even if you don't feel like laughing, you join in and the brain will follow eventually and you release all the happy hormones, all the endorphins, um, oxygenate the blood and it just helps you feel very positive and enlightened person and so his wife was a yoga instructor and so that's where the yogic part comes in because he combines the laughter with pranayama so breath of life um, and some deep breathing exercises to also calm the mind as well as uh, oxygenating the body as well so today we'll just be doing a series of exercises so no previous experience required just follow what we do and Zoe kick-started the clinic by asking us to laugh loudly from the belly to the skies. Here's what happened. <laughs> we were then asked to laugh to all four points of the compass. And by the time we'd reached the west, it was like a pack of hyenas had hit the park. You might be able to pick out my cackling contagiously and uncontrollably amongst the crowd. <laughs> Worryingly, it also sounds a little bit like wailing. <laughs> So what was happening here? Why did fake laughter trigger the real deal? Neuroscientist Dr Tristan Birkenstein, who works with the Medical Research Council Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit in Cambridge and attended the laughter clinic with me, got to grips with a question that David Vanderberg got in touch with. Why is it that when you fake laugh for long enough, you end up laughing for real? And Kate Lamble has also asked, why is laughter infectious? Laughter, you can think of it same as yawning. So if you start to fake yawn, you will start to yawn for real, and you will be contagious, either with a fake yawn or for the, with a real yawn. Um, and laughter probably works the same way. So there, there, are, there are a couple of papers the last two years looking at fake laughter versus some sort of real laughter. I would say mainly it's about smiling, and they do seem to recruit quite a similar network including the motor cortex and, and some other areas. So the motor cortex is involved in controlling our muscles? Yeah, so, so the motor cortex, it's controlling the muscles, the muscles of the face and the muscles of the larynge and the muscles you would use for, to laugh. But very strong laughter does involve whole body movements in general. 
Thank you, Dr. Tristan Birkenstein from Cambridge. And a study published in 1988 by Strachan colleagues indicates that simply gripping a pencil in your mouth to induce a fake smile can make you actually find things funnier. Participants with a pencil stuck between their mouth rated cartoon images as more entertaining than those with closed lips. You can try it on the move, even if you don't have a pencil on you, simply by repeating E. And sticking with the subject of fake laughter, with this question for Professor Sophie Scott from University College London. Mark Burgess got in touch with this. Does making yourself laugh release as many endorphins, if any at all, as real laughter? You absolutely do. So it's been shown by uh, Robin Dunbar over in Oxford that you increase your uptake of the naturally circulating endorphins when you laugh. And that seems to be whether or not you do, you're really laughing or you're posed laughing. And that's probably because of the physical work that you're having to do to laugh. It's, you're, you're doing exercise. It doesn't feel like it, but your um, intercostal muscles, which move when you're laughing, move so much more than they do when you're normally doing things like breathing or talking that it's a bit like sort of sprinting for your ribcage. Um, well, like sprinting is for your legs, laughing is for your ribcage. So you get the same kick from your increased uptake of endorphins that you would get from doing any other kind of exercise. There's nothing particularly special about laughter in that respect. It's just, but it's a sort of exercise you can do sitting down with friends, which isn't not normally you know, well, a place where you do a lot of exercise. So it's, you're getting a good feeling from it via that route. Again, Robin Dunbar's shown that you get raised pain thresholds when you've been laughing. The consequences of these increased uptake of endorphins physically makes you better able to tolerate pain. Fabulous. The power of laughter makes you less susceptible to pain, releasing endorphins, exercising your body and engaging your social brain. Thanks to Zoe Harris, Tristan Birkenstein and Sophie Scott. We next return to Professor Nutt for his top neuroscience nuggets for 2013. Uh, the third thing is also is another medication, and which is a drug called vortioxetine, and this is the first new antidepressant in the last decade, and it's a new kind of antidepressant. It's got some serotonin reuptake inhibiting properties, but it's also engineered in the molecule a, a very significant number of receptor uh, interactions. It's a 5-HT3 receptor antagonist, a 5-HT1A receptor partial agonist. Works on the 5-HT1D receptor uh, as well. And uh, this is a really interesting molecule because it does seem, as well as being an antidepressant, to also have some particular ability to improve cognitive function, in the, such as poor attention and concentration in depression, which is a uh, a symptom in depression that hasn't really been particularly helped by other antidepressants. So to my mind, this is exciting. And also, it's it's just great to know that there is still innovation in the field of depression, which is, as many of you will probably realise, the largest cause of disability in the Western world now. Thanks to David Nutz. You're listening to the Naked Neuroscience Podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. If you have any comments or questions about this show, please contact Hannah at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Neuroscience or you can post on the Naked Scientists Facebook page. And you'll find the full transcript for this episode and other Naked Neuroscience episodes on our website. That's thenakedscientists.com forward slash neuroscience. Another top nugget on the Naked Neuroscience Tour, stripping science in the sauna.
Earlier this year, I visited Russia for a conference. But first, I took a little interval to immerse myself in Russian culture. Andy Irving took me to the Banya. But what exactly is one of those? It's uh, a place to relax and to... uh experience sauna-like conditions in Russia. So it's a typical Russian leisure time activity, particularly for those cold, chilly evenings by Lake Baikal in Siberia. And in the Banyan, men and women go into a very hot room that's been heated by burning logs, and it's basically a sauna where, um, in order to cool down after 10 minutes of heat, men whip each other with birch leaves. And Andy's entering the sauna with some of the birch leaves. And I'm joined by three other neuroscientists and we are actually naked. So we are doing a naked scientist interview. That's nice. And you are? Mark Cunningham from Newcastle University. And Jamie Ainge from St Andrews University. And Andy Irving from Dundee University. Hello. And so what's going on in my head as I enter the sauna? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of dopamine being released in the nucleus accumbens as I'm feeling reward and pleasure at the sight of you all here in in the banya. Uh, (laughs) Aside from that, is there anything else that's going on? There's probably a fair amount of activity in your amygdala at the abject fear that's also going on at at, at the same time. But um, there'll be some processes going on. So we know, for example, that if you increase temperatures in the brain, then you affect some fairly physiological, uh, fairly fundamental physiological mechanisms. So things like um, the oscillations in your brain will vary quite dramatically depending on the temperatures. So there's nerve endings on my skin and they're sending lots of electrical signals up to my brain, to the region of the brain that are regulating temperature and sensing the temperature. And that is causing different electrical activity oscillations? Well, thankfully it isn't happening right now, given that the body spends a lot of time basically making sure that our, our, our brain stays at a relatively constant temperature. So if, um, if we stayed in here for a long time and we have a little timer on the wall to tell us when we need to get out, then uh, we might see, start to see these sort of fundamental mechanisms changing, as I say, quite dramatically, and that would be fairly bad. So if we could sort of record brain activity at the moment, that might be one way to tell each other when we should be getting out of here. As I say, Mark knows more about this than me. So, yeah, so at the minute, the temperature in the banya is close to 70 degrees centigrade, which is obviously very far away from what we're uh, used to uh, at room temperature. And so one of the things that our brain will try to do is it will obviously try to kick in with feedback mechanisms to maintain a form of homeostatic balance. And one way that it does this is through thermoregulation. One of the most obvious examples of thermoregulation is the fact that we are now perspiring quite a lot, uh, again, to try and sort of control the core temperature. I'm, I'm glowing, not perspiring, and definitely not sweating. You're, you, are, you, are, you are glowing, and I am sweating. <laughs> uh, I'm a sweating neuroscientist. And, I mean, as Jamie already alluded to, uh, large groups of uh, brain cells within, within the cortex, within the brain, are capable of generating coherent synchronous activity in the form of brainwaves. And uh, those brainwaves have been previously demonstrated in an experimental study to be very much temperature sensitive. So if you experimentally in a control environment change the temperature in which very thin sections of brain are, are maintained from which you're recording these brainwaves, you can see uh, changes in the dynamics of this activity. So ultimately, if you push that temperature too far, uh, you can, in some cases, particularly in, um, in children, elicit uh, seizures. And this is very well documented in the case of febrile seizures, where young kids who 
are still their brains are still trying to learn in terms of um, the adaptation processes with regard to thermoregulation. Uh, if their temperature rises due to a fever, uh, out of physiological ranges, it can actually elicit a, a febrile seizure. So a seizure is like a kind of epileptic fit, yes, kind yeah, of like on the floor, shaking uncontrollably. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. And uh, so there is good evidence that our brains are very sensitive to to temperature, and if we are not able to control that. Uh, then pathological or, or uh, dysfunctional activity can arise. And Andy, I think, you, I believe you have rustling there in your hands. One way that we could make sure that we don't increase the temperature too much, so to help us cool down, what, what's this? Well, this, what I'm holding are, are, are birch leaves. So these, these are uh, traditional Russian uh, method and approach to actually shake and administer little droplets of water so that you can cool down while you're in the banya and also also these these are gently <laughs> these are gently used to um to promote blood flow to the skin while you're in the banya which is an important aspect of the entire process and i think the, the increased blood flow is is actually very good for the brain because yeah. because by Increasing the oxygen supply, particularly to the prefrontal cortex, that will allow us to experience the uh, the, the, the entire banya in a, in a much greater and, and more memorable fashion. That's so, what, that's what, so that's if we continue uh, to, it's, it's really cooling um, and incredibly pleasant. Uh, I'm getting nice rushes of air to my face as you're whipping me. Um, I don't know what to say. I'm speechless, actually. Birch leaves in the banya, all in the name of getting in touch with the local tradition and demonstrating how our body and brains regulate temperature. Also, I was told, thanks to Andy Irving, Mark Cunningham and Jamie Ange for their demonstration. And this year, I also visited the Royal Albert Hall in London, where the music and mental health charity Squeakgate were performing. I spoke with lead guitarist Toby Peters about his experiences of living with addiction. I think mental illness is much on the streets as it is behind closed doors. I think it's, it doesn't take prisoners, basically. And some people self-medicate with drugs and alcohol. And when they get sober or clean, quite common people get diagnosed with either depression or bipolar or schizophrenia. And can you tell us a little bit about your experiences? Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been dry and clean now for nearly six years, this October actually. I lived on the streets on and off for about 10 years and I always felt that I was outside looking in. I always felt that I was different. My thought patterns were different from other people. I felt like a hermit in a crowd. And alcohol basically made me comfortable for the period that it affected me until it ran out and then it wasn't so comfortable. And um, I sobered up and I realised that, through, I mean, this is what Squeaky Gate does, really, and I'm, and I'm a great believer that creativity, for some reason, it helps people to sort of connect to other people. I mean, I, I know people who are complete outcasts. They beg on the streets. You know, people cross the road if, they, if, if they're sitting on the street. They're, they're complete social outcasts. And the sort of work I do is where people can use their artistic skills or their creativity to communicate, break down barriers, and people start actually listening to people with these stereotypical labels. People get acceptance and they listen. And they don't sympathise in a sense of patronisation. They sort of think, hang on a minute, 
you know, I've got a, a daughter or a son or I've got a, you know, a mother or a father who also suffers from mental illness. So it's sort of like, it's not as such as a taboo. And do you think that Squeaky Gate are providing a way of bringing people together to feel comfortable and to feel part of a team, but this time a, a creative team that's creating music? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a really good way of, of, of community spirit. It's a laugh, it's fun, um, and I think what's really important, it's, it breaks down barriers for the outside world as such to come in and see what people are doing. And we're celebrating that the fact is we're not intimidated by labels, we're not, you know, take us what you see. And I think that's really important. It's very empowering. I think, you know, I am a recovering alcoholic and I will be for the rest of my life whatever caused me to drink myself nearly to death is irrelevant now. What's relevant is the fact is I choose not to drink. I have found people who support me and understand me and give me encouragement. And mostly these are people who have either experienced mental health or have experienced alcoholism or addiction and it gives a way of, of people to communicate to each other. So Toby uses creativity to help beat addiction and social isolation. We've had loads of questions in on the topic of addiction. So to answer a few of them, I spoke with Dr. Amy Milton at Cambridge University. Linseed Larson got in touch to ask, some people seem to get addicted to certain drugs, but others just don't. Why is this? Many people use drugs of abuse and they never become addicted. So alcohol is a really good example. Most people will go down to the pub, have a few drinks after work, and it's not ever a problem for them. But there are certain populations of people, people who have vulnerabilities. If you are someone who's quite anxious, um, you're probably not going to enjoy using some types of drugs. So for instance, cocaine, which makes people quite paranoid and anxious if they take a lot of it. However, you might find that drugs like alcohol help to relieve some of that anxiety. And so you would be perhaps more likely to become addicted to those drugs. There are some vulnerabilities like in alcoholism where very highly heritable. So for instance, if you have particular genes that mean you don't really feel the effects of a hangover, that means in the early stages of use you can drink more because you're not having the awful hangovers afterwards and that escalation in use then makes you more likely to become addicted. Thanks Amy. And so what proportion of the population suffer from problems with addiction? It's perhaps surprisingly low for the numbers you would expect. So of the people who abuse cocaine, for instance, actually only 20% of those individuals are classified as being addicted. It seems that the majority can actually have control over their drug use, which if you think again of the case of alcoholism as sort of a, a common sense example, most people can control their alcohol intake, but there's a subpopulation of people who then find that they're not able to control their use. But obviously because alcohol is a legal drug, more people use it in the first place, which means the absolute numbers are greater than you would see for that subpopulation who become addicted to Class A drugs, for instance. James Harrison has been in touch saying, why do people find stopping or beating an addiction such a hard thing to do? Well, what happens in addiction is that drugs of abuse, what they're doing is tapping into the reward and motivational system. 
that exists so that you know to do certain things that are good for you so to promote you looking for food to promote you looking for mates and to make you avoid things that are bad for you so these are really evolutionary ancient systems when they control behavior they do so in quite an unconscious way you don't really want to be standing there debating what you should be doing when there's a predator that's about to jump on you However, when you have a drug of abuse doing this, these mechanisms are then diverted into drug-seeking behaviour. As with all behaviours, repetition breeds habits. And the thing about addiction is that these habits become compulsive, so you lose that break on behaviour. And Georgianne Lavery has been in touch saying, do other animals get addicted or is this just a human kind of trait? So he says, it's said that mountain goats will grind their teeth off to eat a certain kind of lichen off the rocks. Um, can this be true? Could other species become addicted? So I have to admit, I'm not an expert on goat addiction, but I did go and look this up. There's a little bit of discrepancy as to whether it's goats or sheep, but there are certainly populations of sheep and or goats who will consume lichens um, and will grind their teeth down. Or some lichens have psychoactive substances in them, so narcotics and hallucinogens, for instance. So... This is sort of a, quite an unusual example of, I guess, um, a natural addiction occurring in animals. You also see it actually in some, um, in some monkeys. So monkeys that are near tourist resorts will go and steal cocktails from the guests um, and get drunk on those. I think there's also some incidences of elephants consuming overripe, slightly fermenting fruit and becoming drunk. That's not necessarily the same as being addicted, but it's sort of a nice example of drug use in animals. Um, animals do get addicted, which is useful um, for those working in addiction because my lab, for instance, specialises in rodent models of addiction. And rats will use any drugs of abuse that humans will, with the exception of LSD, actually. But I suspect LSD is probably not that pleasant if you don't know what to expect from it. Um, but all other drugs of abuse, heroin, amphetamine, cocaine, alcohol, the rats will use. And interestingly, the population of rats that satisfy the diagnostic criteria for addiction is the same proportion as in human users. So if you allow a population of rats to use cocaine, for instance, about 20% of those animals will work for that cocaine despite adverse consequences will escalate their use will lose control over when they use the other 80 percent of the animals will use it but they can take it or leave it which is really similar to what you see in the humans thanks toby and amy we close the show by hearing again from professor nutt on his remaining top two neuroscience nuggets for 2013 uh, and then the fourth one is the recent nobel prizes for discovering neuronal transport mechanisms and vesicle production and vesicle fusion and uh, the whole process of synaptic machinery. And uh, obviously the synapse is what determines how brains really work. They're the key elements in terms of brain communication. So credit to those uh, American scientists who uh, have really pulled that apart. And then the fifth one, I'm afraid, is a little bit personal. But I'm very proud of a study we did, uh, just published in Journal of Neuroscience, which I think is the first study ever to show that you could determine in human brain the site of action of a drug on a particular neuronal class uh, using the fast temporal resolution of magnetoencephalography, MEG. We, we showed that the, the layer 5 cortical pyramidal cells were the target of the psychedelic drug psilocybin, and we can explain its 
interesting actions to produce sensory distortion and hallucinations through its disruption of that uh, those neurons on the cortical microcircuit. So we think that's a real world first, and uh, I hope some of you agree. I mean, the reason we're interested in psilocybin is not simply because we're interested in the psychedelic state and how uh, that the drug changes consciousness, but we're interested in why there are so many 5-HEQA receptors in the brain, which is the target receptor of this drug, and the layer 5 pyramidal cells, which are the cells which essentially receive uh, what we call top-down signaling from prefrontal cortex into other parts of the cortex. Crick and Koch, about uh, eight years ago, thought that the layer 5 pyramidal cells were the core of consciousness. And in a way, we've shown that for the first time by perturbing them with psilocybin, we were able to disrupt consciousness. So I think we've proved the, the cricking block theory of consciousness. Uh, psilocybin is a particularly interesting drug, not only because it does that, but by, by producing a short-term disruption of that, that neuronal system, it seems to, uh, in some people, produce a sense of well-being and benefit. And we're in the process of now trying to develop it or explore its potential utility as a treatment for resistant depression, because we think in depression, there's uh, the neural circuits get over-engaged, particularly with negative ruminations, and we may be able to disrupt that with uh, drugs like psilocybin, which is, in fact, psilocybin is the active ingredient of mushroom, magic mushrooms, and there's quite a lot of um, commentary on the web now about people using these mushrooms to treat mental disorders such as depression and obsessive-compulsive disorder. David Nutt, and that's a tour through my favourite bits of Naked Neuroscience for 2013. Thanks to all those in the programme, including Zoe Harris, Tristan Birkenstein, Sophie Scott, Andrew Irving, Mark Cunningham, Jamie Ainge, Toby Peters and Amy Milton. I'm Hannah Critchlow, and this is Naked Neuroscience in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. See you next year at Open Our Minds.